0: I'm on a melting ice cube of $500 million worth of money. The purchasing power is dwindling at 10% to 20% a year. I have to do something.
1: Hello there from Bedford in the United Kingdom. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got MicroStrategy CEO, Michael Saylor on, and this is definitely his best Bitcoin interview ever. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. So first up today, we have Casa, who are the best in Bitcoin security. Now, with Casa, it could not be easier to protect your Bitcoin from hackers, personal mistakes, in-person attacks, device failure, and so much more. I'm a customer. I've been a customer for a couple of months now, and I'm loving it. I'm so glad I've got the peace of mind of not being able to make mistakes myself or have other people come and try and steal my Bitcoin. Now... Because Casa is such a badass company, they do have a product for every Bitcoin out there. With their gold product, you get triple the security of a hardware wallet, and that's for only $10 a month. With Casa Platinum, you get their 3 of 5 multi-sig, which is the best protection for large Bitcoin holders, and that also comes at a great price. And with Casa Diamond, you get their full service offering, including a customised personal security review, inheritance planning, and of course, their best-in-class security. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. To find out more, head over to keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also, let's talk about sportsbet.io, because they are also the best in what they do. They are the best in online gaming. And you heard recently that with the Premier League back, that not only did they go and end up sponsoring Southampton, not only did they go and put a Bitcoin logo on the front of a Premier League shirt, but they also became the betting sponsor for Arsenal. Now, listen, I know these guys. I've been out to Estonia. I've spent time with them. They love Bitcoin. They want to do everything they can to promote Bitcoin. And they're now putting Bitcoin in front of billions of Premier League fans worldwide. And with the football back, if you want to have a wager on your team, or you want to have a wager on against the team you don't like, Sportsbet.io always has a bunch of promotions for you football fans. Just head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions and sportsbet.io is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T.io. And also, we welcome back recently Least Authority as a sponsor for the podcast. Now listen, this company is for you techies out there. Those of you out there building and creating applications. Least Authority is a security consulting company who are pushing the limits on how to build privacy respecting solutions. They specialize in security audits, design specification reviews, and security by design. And they can also help you improve the security of your wallet application, key management solution, layer two protocol, p 2 p network design, use of cryptography, and so much more. Now, if you want to boost your security strategy, you can arrange a free, no obligation call, to find out how Least Authority can help you on your next project. Just head over to their website and hit the Schedule a Call button. That's at leastauthority.com, which is L-E-A-S-T-A-U-T-H-O-R-I-T-Y.com. Okay, so onto the show today, and we have a monster. Now, MicroStrategy CEO has been doing the rounds, Mr. Michael Saylor. He's been on lots of other podcasts, but this is going to be his best interview ever, definitely ever. Out of all of them, this is the best one. Now we couldn't help but notice that they made a little dip in the market, bought a little bit of Bitcoin, just a small $425 million worth. I'm sure you've seen it all by now. Back in August, they announced that they bought 21,454 Bitcoin for $250 million. Not content with that. Next month, Michael Saylor announced that they had doubled down and they bought an additional 16,796 Bitcoin, adding it to their treasury, taking the total purchase up to around $425 million dollars. Now, that was pretty mind-blowing news. Blew my mind. Now, firstly, not just that they are a publicly traded company seeing the value of Bitcoin, but even more than that, the sheer size of the Bitcoin purchase. This just wasn't a tiny fraction of their treasury. It is now their principal holding, and it's pretty amazing to see their conviction with Bitcoin. So I spoke to Michael early on, and I asked him to come on the show to go through the process they went through, where his conviction in Bitcoin came from, as well we had to talk about Square, because on the day we had this plan, Square also announced that they had bought $50 million of Bitcoin. Pretty amazing week, really. Now, this interview was such a monster. It was such a huge interview. It ended up being like three and a half hours long, so I've decided to break up into two parts, because there's clearly two parts of this interview. I'll be dropping the second part on Friday, so make sure you check out that too. If you've got any questions or any feedback, please reach out to me. My email address is hello at did.com. Also, have you checked out my other show, Defiance? My new series about Ghislaine Maxwell is really doing quite well, actually. Um, It's outperforming the Bitcoin shows, which is, yeah, after a year of hard work, is really cool to see. Now, a lot of research has gone into this story about Ghislaine Maxwell, so if you want to check that out, that's over at defiance.news. Outside of that, have a great week, and I will see you all on Friday. Michael, how are you, man?
0: Awesome. It's a double awesome
1: day. Double awesome. Well, lots to talk about. But listen, look really appreciate you coming on. I know you wanted to save your favorite Bitcoin podcast to last. Um, so I appreciate that man. And uh, yeah, we've we've got a massive thing to talk about, haven't we? We just a h- huge like what time in a huge announcement that square hasn't inv- hasn't invested any money in ethereum
0: I- <laughs> Yeah, I woke up this morning and I, and I saw that and it made it made reading Twitter worthwhile for the year it was it was yeah. just an extraordinary
1: piece of news why why do you think they ha- why do you think they haven't put any money into ethereum
0: well i, I think in the crypto industry there's two competing narratives and two competing schools of thought you can describe crypto as as vegas in cyberspace or you can describe crypto as the savings alone at the end of the universe and if what you wanted was the savings alone at the end of the universe, you want Bitcoin. It's about trust, reliability, put it there, leave it for 30 years. And you don't really want lots of exciting things happening. And and, if, and on the other hand, the entire DeFi movement and, and the Ethereum movement is all about smart people doing complicated things in a hurry in order to get some edge on some other smart person and uh and it's a little bit too much of a wild west and so if you're attracted to the one thing if you're a trader then maybe you like that but i'm not a trader i mean corporate treasuries Mm -hmm. aren't traders they're looking for the savings loan at the end of the universe
1: right man well listen look it's it's a strange one because obviously you made a huge like bet on bitcoin right we'll call it a bet for now um Square have a much bigger balance sheet, but have put fifty million dollars in. But in some ways, it's it's also just as important because that's like a that's a signal to Silicon Valley, that's a signal to other Fortune five hundred companies, right?
0: Oh, I think it's more important. <laughs> um, I think it's more important because first of
1: all, Jack, I didn't want to say that
0: Jack is such an iconic figure and such a leadership figure in the world. I mean, he's he's a worldwide leader, right? He represents something mm-hmm. to, to everybody. And second, they didn't, they didn't make this move as, as just a financial gesture. They don't need the money, right? They have more money than God. 10 billion in cash that's sitting around, but the market caps of Twitter and Square together are 150 billion or, or, or clo- closing it on 200 billion or something. So this is not about money this is about empowerment right and if you read their uh, their press release what they said is we believe the cryptocurrency and bitcoin and specific is going to empower an entire class of people all around the world to live a better life and and i think that that's incredibly powerful because now you have two different reasons that you might want to invest in bitcoin one reason We think it's a good treasury reserve asset, and it's safe, and it's financially responsible. The second reason is there's 932 million people in those 20 countries with collapsing currencies that have no chance at a decent life, and this is a lifeboat for them, right? As I said, it's like an arc of encrypted energy to escape the flood of a currency collapse, and I think Square... They wrapped, uh, they wrapped that entire move with the agenda of make the world a better place. Who wants to stand against that?
1: Who? Exactly. Listen, so I imagine you woke up, you saw that and first went, yes, amazing. Uh, and then I imagine then you also checked out the Bitcoin price. But I haven't checked it and confirmed it. But I did see someone say on Twitter that the MicroStrategy stock price went up. Five percent. Is that true? I believe it's up today.
0: And, <laughs> and I am not allowed to comment on the stock price going up nor going down. And so I don't make a practice of that. Well, I can. I'm delighted that Bitcoin price is up and I'm delighted that this is injecting positive, constructive, uh, inspirational energy into the space, you know, and, and I think only good things are going to come from that.
1: Well, I didn't see any MicroStrategy news today. So it's that thing where uh, MicroStrategy micro is like a Bitcoin ETF now. <laughs> I mean, you can't comment on that, but I, I can. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, look, that's uh, an amazing start to the day. Uh, it's that kind of, I know you, you're aware of Parker Lewis and his writing, but it's like that gradually, then suddenly, it's just like, it's another one. But this is such a big one. And I do wonder whether this will signal out to Silicon Valley because you know, people do respect Jack Dorsey. And well, firstly, I, I wonder whether Twitter themselves will also you know, make an investment. But I, I wonder if the likes of Facebook will be looking or other Silicon Valley companies are thinking, look, we're sat on all this cash. Why are they doing it? Should we consider it? Because even though it was 50 million, it was actually a very small percentage. Of what they have on their balance sheet.
0: Yeah, well, I think there's a, a parade of wonderfuls that can follow this. You know, for example, uh, there are a lot of people that uh, that will look to uh, Square as an extraordinary, progressive, successful company, which they are, right? It's just extraordinarily successful, mm-hmm. and they're going to want to copy uh, this because who wants to argue with success and especially technology progressive success. There's another group of people that are going to stop and say, what do you mean when he said Bitcoin is a tool for empowering those in the world that that don't have other options, right? What's this empowerment message uh, mean? And they're gonna start thinking about it and they're going to realize that people in Sub-Saharan Africa can't buy Apple stock and wire it to their loved ones in order to avoid being beaten to death by, by a collapsing currency. Right. And that's, that's the difference, right? Nobody's going to buy a T bill. They're not going to buy bars of gold. They're not going to buy stocks. They're not going to buy real estate in order to avoid having the currency collapse and being impoverished or starved to death. But in fact, Right. The the real news from yesterday that I tweeted about was Bitcoin hits an all time high in Turkey, which is meaningful for 90 million people. And there was an awesome story on Medium about the other 19 countries where the currencies are also collapsing. And so when people Mm -hmm. start thinking about an investment that's going to change the life of a billion people, and then they start thinking, well, what's the next billion people that are going to have their currency collapse? And then they start seeing there is a fundamental difference between buying Amazon stock and buying Bitcoin, because Amazon stocks not going to fix the problem for a billion people in the world. And, and I, I think that that's awesome to bring that to people's attention. I think the third thing, the third wonderful thing that's going to come from this is that if, if Jack does it, there's a whole raft of other billionaires that are sitting on other companies with treasuries. And they start thinking, well, if it's the right thing to do for the world, and if he did it in a courageous fashion, then why shouldn't we do it in a courageous fashion? Because it's the right thing to do for the world. And that takes us to the fourth, the fourth wonderful. The fourth wonderful is all of the hedge fund and fast money dudes on Wall Street just sitting, about, sitting around talking about how to front run all the non-traders, right? I, I'm not a trader. Like, I buy it. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking I'm going to hold it until you rip it from my cold, dead fingers, right? If if I don't fail in whatever else I'm doing in my life, it's going to be passed on to my heirs and my heirs' heirs. Mm-hmm. And if I run into a crisis or a problem, I'm going to take some out of my piggy bank and I'm going to convert it to fiat to solve the problem. That's that's the view of a, of a long-term investor. That's the view of someone with conviction, right? Like, that's why it's silly to talk about, I sold it this week so I could buy it cheaper next week. You look pretty silly on a day like today. So there, there's that group of people, but there's another set of fast money traders on Wall Street and the hedge fund guys, and they're thinking and obsessing over the shape of the bend of the reaction curve. You know, they're trading gamma, And they're thinking i'm going to short it to buy it to short it to buy it to and now they're thinking well maybe we can get ahead of the guy that's about to follow jack dorsey's lead so jack did it then there's someone who just is greedy right they just want to make the money they're going to get in between the front run the next decent committed investor and that creates its its own self-perpetuating thing And of course, then you have just a a raft of publicity and news stories, and you'll have a whole set of boardroom conversations and corporate conversations, both not just in in public companies, but in private companies. And in those private companies, they're thinking, well, this is not even a, you know, 1% means it's immaterial, which means you don't, you probably don't have to go to the board and get, you know, and you don't have to go through a whole set of approvals that you would need if it became 10% or 20% or 50%, right? What, what we did, we wanted to telegraph because it's not 1%. But but 1% makes a difference. And if you're a private company, well, you don't have to worry about that. You just move. And so I, I think that there's just uh, an avalanche of wonderful things that happen and all of them add up to this this simple observation, right? Bitcoin's a good thing, and it's a safe thing, and you might want to get some and catch it in, in case it catches on, right? That's yeah, yeah. story. And that's enough. That's a pretty good story.
1: Well, but there's another interesting news story that came out why well, something I saw on Twitter today. I don't know if you noticed, but uh Argentina's heading to its tenth default. Uh, but there was a tweet by Professor Steve uh, Hankey, who, by the way, is is not a Bitcoin believer, but this was interesting. He put, Argentina's net liquid foreign reserves have evaporated and the PESO uh, is tanking again. Argentina has no strategy. And Argentina was really interesting because I always talk about like, if I try and talk to my friends, go down the pub and they're like, Pete, tell me about this Bitcoin thing. And it's always hard to explain it. When I was out in Uruguay, I was sat down with a couple of people from Argentina. It's so easy to explain. They just get it. You just explain, yes, money the government can't steal, they can't inflate away, and they can't seize. They're like, oh, how do I get some? So to see that news on the hey, same Peter, day,
0: I I feel for Argentina, and I, I have business in Argentina. Yeah. In fact, I have a very we are the number one business intelligence company in Argentina. We've got a great business there, and I've got great employees there. But you want to hear two good Argentina stories from a non Bitcoiner? Okay, yeah, tell me. Here's my first. Yeah. I had a million dollars in Argentina 10 years ago in a a bank account. And I read the news, and there was no Bitcoin. And uh, so I did the best thing I could. I said, put it it in a Bank of America in Buenos Aires. Good. Now move it into a U.S. dollar account. Great. Because I don't trust the peso. The peso is trading one one peso to one dollar. It was pegged. And I said, I'm reading all this news that they might go off the peg, so put it in dollars. I, and then I said, can you just wire it back to the U.S.? And they said, my lawyers go, no, that's illegal, capital controls. I said, I, so I can't, I, I can't get my money out. No. Okay, we'll put it in Bank of America and, and um, Buenos Aires. Great. So in rapid succession, this happens, press release. All US dollars in Argentina are here by law required to be converted to pesos. Okay, oh, there, there are a million dollars became million pesos. Next day, the peso is not, peg is broken and now the peso trades 10 pesos to the dollar. And I had a hundred thousand dollars worth of pesos in 24 hours. And somewhere so after being beat to death uh, a couple of months later, it's like Oh, and now you can wire out your money if you pay a twenty or thirty percent fee. So my million dollars became about eight eighty thousand dollars in short order, and and that was my first experience with. Uh, and we were a wealthy company, right? So it, it it just irked me, but I had money elsewhere. If I had, if that was the only million dollars in the world, and you took ninety percent of it, it crushes you. So I felt for the Argentines then, but we kept doing business, and we do business in pesos. Blah, blah blah. Ten years go by, nine years go by. The year is twenty nineteen. I still don't know Bitcoin. So I start reading the Wall Street Journal. Argentine
1: Hold on, hold on. You're saying are you telling me twenty nineteen. You still didn't know Bitcoin.
0: I was an idiot. I,
1: like, no, 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 that, no. that's just uh, interesting.
0: I, I look. I. am going to come back to that. about it in twenty thirteen. I forgot about it. I got wrapped up into the rest of the world. I was busy doing my thing. There are a lot of reasonable people that are just busy doing other things and they don't focus. So I really didn't. Know. No, but it's not.
1: Yeah, no, it's not a criticism. It's, it's like it's how quickly you moved them when you found out. You know, uh,
0: wars have a way of opening people's minds to new ideas. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, if you if you read the structure of scientific revolution by Thomas Kuhn, he talks about paradigm shift, and the message is people don't embrace new ideas until they die. And, and, uh, you have to wait for the entire generation to die. Intelligent people don't embrace new ideas until they die, unless there's a war. And the war is the one, is the one exception, like world war II comes along and you get some new ideas or as Trotsky said, you know, you may not be interested in war, war is interested in you. And when some, when, when there's a war on COVID or there's a war on currency, and you get slugged in the face or when the currency collapses by 90 percent then then not being aware of something flips to oh my house is on fire where was the fire extinguisher thingy again that i didn't think about so i think this is a year that opened a lot of people's minds but enough of that yeah. back to 20 20- we'll cut
1: yeah we'll come back to that
0: 2019 i still don't know bitcoin i read the paper the peso is crashing again and I start and I start having anxiety about our, our cash. I'm like, how much money do we have in Argentina? My finance people are like, I think a million and a half dollars. Now we have, we had $600 million elsewhere, you know? So they're like, well, it's just like, it's not that much. First, Their answer was, it's not that much. I'm like, tell me how much again? A million and a half dollars, maybe two. I'm like, well, tell me exactly how much. I still care. <laughs> well, like yeah. $1.6 million dollars. I said, so can we can we repatriate it? Well, no, there's capital controls. we don't know how to do that. I said, I said, can you buy gold with it? No, we can't we could buy gold with it. I said, can what well, can you buy anything and carry it out of the country? Well, we can't we don't think we could do that. I said, can you buy it? okay, this is true. I, I literally said to my my finance person, my treasurer, with my general counsel in the room. I said, can we buy a yacht with it and sail the yacht to the Caribbean?
1: <laughs> Please tell me you did that.
0: They looked at me like you're, they looked at me like, are you, uh, you know, just like, you, you can't tell your boss that he's batshit crazy, but they're like, we don't think we can do that. I said, oh. I said, Peter, I said, I'm deadly serious. Buy a boat and sail it to the Caribbean, <laughs> get the money out of the country. They said, they said we don't think we can do that. And so that was an example of me just not winning an argument or, or not winning discussion. The final result, or the resolution was we bought some some govern some sovereign debt, or something from the Argentine government that we could legitimately move out after we took a twenty percent haircut, you know. And so oh, and so that was my two Argentina stories. Now, if I had it to do again today, the question I would have asked instead of saying, can you buy a boat and sail it to the Caribbean would be, can you buy Bitcoin?
1: Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. Oh, man, the country is such a basket case. I mean, a lot of places in South America are. Um, Uruguay is one, one of the places I've been that's okay. But, I mean, I went out to Venezuela earlier this year Again, it's just, these places are such a basket case. But explaining to Bitcoin to them is like really, it's really easy. Anyway, listen, we've got a lot to get through. Um, did I, I can't remember because we spoke before. Did I tell you about that time you first messaged me? Tell me. So I knew on the day that... you me, Peter, I, I
0: knew you. You and I were on a first-ending uh, basis. I had listened to 10 or 20 hours of you. And what Bitcoin did before you'd ever heard of me?
1: Yeah, I hope that's more. You listen to more of that than you did a Pomp. But listen, look, I, <laughs> I I get a my DMs are open, right? And I get a lot. I get a lot of messages, and and a lot of them are just like nonsense. So you have to just you filter them very quickly. On the day your news came out, it was like uh, uh, you'd message me on you DM me, but you didn't send me a message. You just sent me a, a link to the tweet, and I was just like, whatever, I don't care, whatever this, and just ignored it. And then I saw, I think it was something like Nick Carter tweet about it. I was like, oh, what's this? And read the story. I was like, oh, that's cool. I should try and talk to the CEO, try and get him on the podcast. So then I was Googling MicroStrategy, MicroStrategy CEO, and it comes up Michael Saylor. I'm like, okay. So I click on uh, the link in the Google search results. It comes up with you. And I'm like, oh, his DMs are open. I click on your DMs, and there it is, and there's the message. we I'm like, oh shit, you messaged me. Well, so, Peter, big, I didn't, big confession there.
0: I didn't know anybody in the Bitcoin community, and they didn't know me. I was a, I was a non-person, and so you're, I made a, you're list. a sniper. I made a list of the twelve or, or the ten most influential people in the Bitcoin space, and I thought, well, maybe if I message. Each of the ten, one of them will notice it, and they'll post it because no one's following me. And so, I, so I was, uh, I was doing the best I could with the tools that I had at my disposal. Yeah.
1: Well, my my mistake. Well, listen, look, we got we got here in the end. A uh, Bit of a uh, you've been busy now this last few weeks, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. The, We're pretty busy place. doing a lot of things, working hard.
1: Never, no, I mean, like, you've you're in the Bitcoin space, you've been done, doing a lot of interviews, you've been get, you know, become known. Like, so, confession number two, I haven't listened to any of your other interviews yet, and I, I did that on purpose. Um, I tend not to listen to other Bitcoin podcasts because if I know if I'm going to interview a person, I don't want to be distracted. Oh, they're deadly but this boring, one I, I purpose,
0: they're deadly boring. And I kept yeah. all the really
1: good stuff for you, Peter. Well, of course, like you said, I mean, like I said, you. It's your favourite podcast, so but no, I, I haven't listened to the others. I do know you've talked about like your career history. I know you talked about that with pomp, so we we won't bother doing that. But there is there is a bunch of stuff to talk about. Firstly, though, like how how are you finding? it? Because you said 2019. That's really interesting. So you discovered it, obviously went deep down the rabbit hole quick, pulled the trigger, which is amazing. But how like how are you finding navigating the space? Because it can be great and it can be unforgiving um but how are you finding it
0: i I like bitcoiners right i mean i i love everything about them right i mean I, i i love the the austrian economic sect and i love the libertarian sect and i love the people that have read science fiction and robert heinlein and And the moon is a harsh mistress and there ain't no such thing as a free lunch and the citadel people. I love that. And I love the, um, I I love the people that are focused upon how we empower the billions of people, bank the unbanked. And I, I love the techno enthusiast and uh, I love the, I love the progression of it. And then I love the refreshing contrarians and the skeptics and, uh, and the likes of it, it's a it's an interesting community with people with a lot of passion. Some of them can be like people can get bent out of shape over the smallest the smallest thing. You know, you'll trigger them if yep. if you were to say something little. You know that once once somebody thinks that their encryption is better, they're like Bitcoin's not encrypted. You know, or once somebody thinks their transactions are fast, they're like Bitcoin's too slow. Or once they think that, you know, the ones that want to bank the unbanked get kind of upset that maybe people with money might get a benefit from it. You know? And they're like, you know, we can't have the institutional interest hijack this thing. And so there's a lot of people that wear their heart on their sleeve. But I'd rather have it that way than the other way. I mean, the other way is just the yeah. mercenaries that don't that don't give a damn about anything like the guy that buys Bitcoin so that they can make a three percent trading yield and sells Bitcoin, like that's very that's too mercenary. Sure. For me. I don't want to be in a world full of mercenaries that are just looking at me as a one night stand.
1: Um, okay, before we get into it, we we like I said, we've got a lot to get through. The one thing I did want to talk to you about is how much exposure have you had to? How the kind of open source dev world works because one of the things I was gonna I know it's a bit cheeky but I was gonna pitch it at you is that you've already made a massive investment but have you like have you considered or would you consider like dev sponsorship have you have you spent much time looking at that stuff?
0: You know, as I got in the Bitcoin community, I, I realized that the real unsung heroes of this space are the developers that are that are working on the software, especially things like Bitcoin Core. <laughs> if it doesn't get upgraded, we all have a and maintain, we all have a problem. And if it gets upgraded too enthusiastically, we still have a problem. <laughs> and so so then I started thinking, who's paying all those people to to keep the heart, you know, and the soul of Bitcoin beating? and uh that that's a rabbit hole that i'm getting i'm moving down right now i've been Mm -hmm. i've been on uh, a journey to get more educated as to how how bitcoin core and how how bitcoin software in general gets maintained tested developed start to understand the consensus mechanisms uh, etc and i would say the conclusion I'm coming to is we need to support it. So, so Peter, I think you convinced me. Uh, that our company is going to start by supporting a Bitcoin developer. Uh, I got to figure out which Bitcoin Boom. developer, but uh, but we're going to start yeah. by supporting one, and then I and I think we'll evolve and increase our support over time because the Amazing. unsung heroes of this space that are doing they're the keepers of the flame are the developers right so if you want this thing mm-hmm. to last for 30 40 50 100 years we actually need passionate developers that are going to maintain this so yeah it seems like i should be supporting that effort the company should be supporting that effort i i probably took that in it cool. when i started but now i'm not now i'm i'm appreciating the need for it
1: but that is so cool that Know because it does rely on on, it's it's like this one of these weird things with Bitcoin, like you can own it, but but some people have a sense of responsibility to support it in other ways. There is a lot of people supporting developers. The fact that you would do that's very cool. Look, we'll have that conversation offline because I guess we have to think about who who would be the first person to speak to about who you would want to consider supporting, and you might want to figure that one out yourself. Um, but that's very cool, I, I will help you out with that. Okay, so. I am. Um, that's very cool. What well done, man. That's amazing. OK, so the, the first area I want to go into is that, and interestingly, Square came out with their announcement today and also talked about releasing almost like a guide for people who wanted to invest in Bitcoin. So I thought it would be interesting also just to go through your experience as well, um, cover that, before we get into some of the juicy details about like what you think about Bitcoin, some of the interesting topics where I'm sure we'll battle on some of them. But can you just talk me through the timeline of, of how this happened? So you discovered in 2019 what the timeline was up until the point where you, not like the internal one, where you made the decision you think, yeah, do you know what? We need to do this. Can you talk me through that kind of like timeline? I think... Um
0: the world undergoes this uh, enters into this pandemic and all the geopolitical reaction to the pandemic starting mid-march by mid-april uh it's pretty clear to me that there's going to be a k-shaped recovery that what we've what we've got is a massive fed intervention which has inflated the value of fixed income securities and stocks back to all time highs, or on the way to all time highs, as though there was no pandemic, and as as though there is no lasting consequence or economic consequence to the pandemic. And then on the other hand, Main Street's shutting down. And, and there's, there's what they say on TV, and then there's what you think. And what I thought was everybody on television was being very optimistic. You know, as we started with 15 days to stop the spread and uh, then it became maybe by Easter. And then it became, well, not quite yet. And then it, you know, and then it became one thing after the other. And so by April, it's pretty clear there's a disconnect. And that disconnect causes you to question all the things you thought you knew about money and all the things you thought you knew about the economy. If if you believe that inflation is less than two percent and the Fed is managing this really well, then maybe you would have noticed that interest rates just aren't jumping back up to five percent and they're two and a half, and you're thinking, well, maybe we'll get there to five, and it's like a two percent thing. When infl- when interest rates go from two percent to zero in a matter of days, and then when when the sentiment becomes, well, I'm not thinking about raising interest rates and I'm not thinking about thinking about raising interest rates for many many years and you and then you realize well assets are going up cash is not going up in value <laughs> inflation in theory is not here but the asset inflation is obviously here so if there is no inflation how come I can't afford to buy anything that's going up in price so rapidly <laughs> if there's no inflation yeah. And, and from that point, you start to reassess your views about uh, the impact, the intervention of the central bank and the impact of the government. And you didn't really have to address it before, but then you have to address it. So I would say I was kind of sh- woken from my slumber or shaken out of uh, a lethargy by about mid-April. And then I started about six weeks of intensive exploration. And that's when... I discover the Bitcoin community, the crypto community. I start uh, going going down the rabbit hole, and I'm I'm reading The Internet of Money, and I'm listening to a bunch of your podcasts. And I I am listening to some pop podcasts. I'm not gonna lie, uh, but I'm also oh, watching debates between Eric Boris and Peter Schiff, and then I eventually find yep. I find I find at some point. I remember you saying you disagreed with Safedine view of art and food. Yeah, he's and, and I'm like who is this Safedine dude? And because you're talking mm-hmm. about him so I guess I better read it and I I understood what you were saying and I get that uh, and uh, I but but the the nuggets I took out of the book were the 7% expansion of the monetary supply for 10 years. Right? And then mm-hmm. uh, that's the eye-opening thing. decade and then once you once you see that the monetary supply is expanding at seven percent and and there is no inflation and interests are low and then you see that that the s p 500 is is going up by eight percent a year for a decade and then you start looking at the bond rate and you're like okay well interest rates on the 10 years went from 550 basis points to 50 basis points then you realize that a $1 million bond inflated to be $10 million. You have to pay 10 million to get the same $550,000 in interest that you could have gotten, so, sorry, to get the same 50,000 in interest that you could have gotten for 1 million, 10 years ago. And that means the inflation rate on a bond is 22%. And so once you get that, and that's a insight I had between April 1st and June, then I realized. I'm on a melting ice cube of $500 million worth of money. The purchasing power is dwindling at 10% to 20% a year. I have to do something. And then it's becoming a question of what are you going to do? And uh, I, you know, I, I'd cycle through all these other, these other investments, but Bitcoin is the purest. It's the, it's the purest treasury reserve asset. If you're, if you're looking for a, if I had a hundred million dollars and I wanted to put it into a, a, a vault and take it out in 30 years, maybe if I wanted to put a hundred million in a vault and take it out a hundred years from now. And mo- most people, they roll their eyes when I say this, cause they're like, well, who's going to live a hundred years? Who thinks about it? That's not the point. The point is when you're thinking about a hundred days, there's just a bunch of noise. The, you know, it's all it's all irrational. There's that phrase, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. And so when yep. people think about 90 days or one year or two years or three years, then you're just making a bunch of decisions based upon the greater fool theory. I know it's stupid to do. It's, it's stupid um, to loan money at 1% interest. But if there's a fool, that's going to actually agree to loan it at 50 basis points for the rest of my life. I'm actually gonna make a lot of money when that other fool steps into that trade. So the greater fool theory kind of gets gets into the mix when you take a one, two, three, five-year time frame. When you go out 10 years, it gets different. But when you go out a hundred years, it's extremely clarifying because now you realize the structural defect of every other idea you have with with a gravitas so when i started saying saying what am i going to do with this money and i started thinking uh, 10 years out 30 years out 100 years out and then i and then i discounted back it became clear that real estate bonds stocks you know uh, corporate debt sovereign debt gold silver commodities none of these things are going (laughs) to work they all have defects with them and, I, and we can go into to all of the defects if you want, like. But the conclusion is they all have defects. And you're going to lose 99.5% of your money if you leave it in the bank over 100 years. You're probably going to lose 95% of your money in gold. But you might lose it all in gold too over 100 years for a lot of reasons. You're
1: definitely in the best. Of th- Tell me that one. Okay. <clears throat> Tell me that one because I would have thought gold... I would have thought gold would have been a kind of safe bet unless you think Bitcoin is destroying gold's value proposition.
0: But it's an important point. Maybe the single most important point, uh, the single most important attribute of Bitcoin versus gold that people do not understand, I think, because they're not really thinking deeply about the problem. And it's this. Go into any bank in any major city in the year nineteen hundred. And put a put a million dollars into gold. Okay, think this through. You have a million dollars in the year 1900. You walk into the best bank in Tokyo, and you buy a million dollars of gold. How much money do you have by the year 2000? Nothing,
1: because Tokyo. I don't know.
0: Did they win or lose the war? Okay, okay. Yeah, in 1945, they lost the war, right? Uh, the bank failed, the government failed. Now go into Beijing in 1900. By the year 2000, what happened to your gold? It's gone. Pick a city in the Western world. Wait, wait. Buenos it's gone. Rio de Janeiro, it's gone. Berlin, it's gone. By the way, it's gone twice in Berlin. You would have lost the money in 1918 when they lost the First World War. You would have lost the money in 1945. You probably would have lost the war when the Weimar Republic failed and the Nazis took over in 1933. There are three regime changes. You would have lost your money. In Paris, you would have lost it when the Germans walked in, marched into Paris, you know, in 1940. Give me a city where you would have not lost your money. By the way, try New York. Try New York. You would have lost it in 1933. The United States won every war in the 20th century. You would have lost your money in New York, D.C., San Francisco, and Chicago. London? Hmm. Not clear. You might have had the gold seized in in a currency revaluation in London. I haven't studied that one. Off the top of my head, I'm thinking maybe you would have not lost all your money in Geneva or Zurich. Maybe. That's the only place, right? I mean, Rome doesn't work. but but how about Madrid? Nope, Spanish civil war. Okay, so that's counterparty risk. In 100 years, uh-huh. what's a hundred years, it's a ninety five percent chance the bank fails or the regime fails, right? ninety five percent chance. if the mm-hmm. if the bank doesn't fail, the regime doesn't fail and nobody seizes your gold or your money, right? and and the and the currency doesn't collapse. In the best case, miners are gonna produce 2% more gold every year. If you produce 2% more gold every year, the half-life of gold is 35 years, which means you go from 100 million in gold to 50 million in gold to 25 million in gold to 12 and a half million in gold. That's assuming the price of gold is flat. If the price of gold tracks inflation, You're going to get 2% more gold. You're going to lose 87% of your purchasing power over a hundred years if the regime doesn't fail. But there's a problem with that because it's a commodity. Okay. I got my start in business, Peter, modeling commodities for DuPont and Exxon, like petroleum, uh, nylon, right? Fibers, polyester, all these commodities. Do you know what the problem is with commodities? The problem with commodities is it's a dirty word. No intelligent business person ever in a hundred years wanted to be known for being in a commodity business. When I'd sit around with the DuPont executives like, oh, we gotta get out of this business. This is a commodity business. Uh, this business was really good till it got commoditized. Commoditized is, was a synonym for destroyed, Peter. I got commoditized, I got destroyed. <laughs> Okay, what's so great about commodity money? Okay, now why? Why is commodity a dirty word? Okay, Seifedean makes this point in his book. Other people make this point. And the point is this, human ingenuity, technology, and capital, entrepreneurism with technology, with capital, can produce anything on this earth that is in high demand if the price is high enough. You want an apartment on Central Park? that's 16,000 square feet with a perfect view of Central Park in the year 2018, you're late, right? Impossible? No, perfectly possible. I buy a block. It cost me 100 million bucks. I build straight up 150 stories. I sell you the apartment for $150 million. Okay. I wouldn't buy that apartment. You wouldn't buy that apartment. But if you have $150 million, There's somebody in the society that can manufacture you Central Park real estate with a perfect view. It's just about the amount of money you want to pay. And so if Mm -hmm. it's a commodity, the kiss of death is when the price goes up, everybody's going to charge into that business. And they're going to start to, and they're going to double the production of it. If the price of gold goes up, there's more gold miners coming online. When it goes up by a factor of 10, there's a lot of gold miners coming online. And by the way, that's not the problem. That's not the problem. That, that's a part of the problem. That's the first order problem. If I actually take the price of gold to $50,000 an ounce, I'm gonna get a lot more gold miners. But here I'm gonna tell you what the real problem is. When the price of gold goes to $50,000 an ounce and hundreds of billions of dollars get invested in gold mining, they're gonna double the production or triple the production of gold They're gonna drive the price down, but the the variable cost of producing gold is gonna be $2,000 an ounce. The price is gonna be $50,000 an ounce. The price of gold is gonna get driven into the dirt to 40, to 30, to 20, to 15, to 10, to five. When it gets to $2,000 an ounce, it's possible that the gold miners will go offline or the commodity producers will go online. But let me tell you what happens in commodity businesses, every one of them for 100 years. I could give you a 1,000 examples. The price goes below the variable cost because there's a government involved that will subsidize the variable cost to keep the plant running. (laughs) And so so if the actual fully burdened cost is $3,000 an ounce and the variable cost is $1,500 an ounce, and you thought it was going to ten thousand dollars on it'll shoot through the, the the fully burdened cost, the cost of capital, to the variable cost, and it might even for a while go below variable cost because it's a national champion and somebody wants to drive everybody else out of business. By the way, what's the most famous commodity in the world right now? Oil. What just well, happened?
1: I, I, I want to say Bitcoin.
0: <laughs> you would like, yeah you're a big we love Bitcoin. I get it but oil, oil?
1: <laughs> but i know it's oil
0: what just happened to oil yep. in this crisis did the went price, negative bro did the price of oil go below the fully burdened cost of producing oil
1: yeah dude it went negative they were paying you to paying you to take it
0: is there any debate about whether it went below the variable cost of producing oil <laughs> the point the point here is this is why you don't put your treasury reserve in a commodity because ultimately, it becomes political. A government might decide that they want to mine gold or they might want to buy the commodity. A company that has 10... Mi- what, when you have $10 billion worth of gold mines and the price of gold goes down, you think anybody walks in and says, let's shut down all of our gold mines, liquidate them for cash and invest it in an Amazon stock. Y- you can move liquid capital from Amazon to Apple... To Bitcoin, you can't move gold mining capital. It only does one thing, which means that I am locked, like my knees buried up at the concrete, and all I know how to do is I need. I know how to make more gold, and so here you're damned if you do. If the price goes up, gold mining is going to triple. If the price goes down, gold miners are going to keep producing gold because they got to work off their fixed cost. By the way, this. This happened with oil during the fracking explosion. We we produced five million barrels of oil in this country a day. And everybody said, oh, my God, the price of oil is going to $100 a barrel. It's a crisis. We fought wars over this, Peter. Two wars over this. We fought wars in order to go protect our oil interests because because we thought the western world was going to be choked to death if we uh, if we didn't have access to cheap oil from saudi arabia so what happened the price of oil went up when it got to 100 dollars a barrel you know what happened big banks the big the big famous bulge bracket banks they would form conferences and they would bring high net worth individuals together and they would say you know there's an opportunity to invest billions of dollars in these new fracking operations. And they can produce oil for $45 a barrel or $40 a barrel. And the price is $100 a barrel. And we can sell it for $70 or $80 or $90 a barrel. Billions of dollars flowed from Wall Street into fracking. And Chesapeake Energy and other frackers came online. The production of oil in the United States was pegged at $5 million barrels a day for like 50 years and then in the next year like it's like 2010 it goes six and 2011 it goes seven and 2012 it goes eight and then the next year nine and the next year ten and this thing that everybody knew was impossible to produce that we went and fought wars in order to generally when you fight a war it's because you think it's pretty important right Mm-hmm. we thought it was impossible to produce oil until we just put some billions of dollars into it. And we took capital and we took chemistry and some technology and we we dynamite some shale fields. And it's very, it's Peter, it's very hard to do. It's hard to put a man on the moon. It's hard to make an airplane not fall out of the sky. It's really hard to create steel You screw up with the steel and it overflows, it falls on the concrete, the water in the concrete superheats, the steel explodes, it becomes a bomb, it kills everybody for hundreds of meters in every direction. We're surrounded by hard stuff that human beings figured out how to do because they had an incentive to do it. So we figured out how to produce oil and there's no oil crisis in America anymore. We have so much oil, we tanked the price of oil. We drove the price of oil so far down that we're ready to go fight a war to get the price of oil up. This is the problem with commodities. And this is why you would be a fool to put all of your life savings into commodity money. Uh, I mean, and this this is why, yeah, gold, I, I joke, I say gold peaked in the 19th century. It's the best thing we had until we came up with something better bitcoin is 21 million gold coins and by the way bitcoin is so much bitcoin mining is so much better than gold mining i don't think people get this let me let me make one more point if you Mm -hmm. put a hundred billion dollars into gold mining you have a hundred billion of special purpose capital, and the only thing you can do with it is flood the money with gold, and you will do that until, until you can't anymore. You're going to be, the gold miners are the enemy of the gold owners. You see, they're your enemy. They're trying to dilute and debase your currency. They're not your friend. Gold miners are at a war with gold owners. If you put a hundred billion dollars in, into Bitcoin mining, you're going to buy arrays of SHA two fifty six miners, and you're, go- and you're going to buy the next generation. The next generation. By the way, what are they good for? Nothing. Mining. Nothing <laughs> other than Bitcoin mining. You can't solve an algorithm. You can't run data centers with them. You you have committed to. D- By the way, there's only one thing you can do with them, which is you can provide security hash power to the bitcoin network you can defend to the death the bitcoin holders assets for the next hundred years that's all you can do with it you can't create any more bitcoin and and so the the beauty of it is you're making a capital investment in a special purpose asset that has no purpose in the universe other than to protect and nurture bitcoin and that's a good thing because because you can't produce more of it you could just make it better. And if the price by if the price of bitcoin goes down and you own this equipment you're not going to sell it to Amazon, you're not going to give it to Google. The only thing you're going to do with it is keep running it until the price of bitcoin or the price of running it is less than the marginal cost of your electricity. And by the way, you might keep running it below the price of electricity because your government, the nation state that has the Bitcoin mining facility might very well view that the same way that the Saudi Arabian government viewed oil, which is we're just going to run our Bitcoin mining rigs until we drive out all the high cost producers and we're going to get the hash power. And when the price of Bitcoin noses up again, then we're going to own X percent, more percent. So what you have is you have a dynamic. But it's so much more constructive to the price of Bitcoin than than oil drilling is to the price of oil, or gold mining is to the price of oil. Bitcoin is not a commodity; it is a spe- it is a specialty, the ultimate specialty, because it is ultimately scarce in the universe. And as people put more capital and more ingenuity into it, they make it better. And with commodities, gold, silver real estate in manhattan you know what happens when tesla price goes up well they can mint more tesla stock in a heartbeat and so you can produce more of most things name something in the universe that is a liquid treasury asset that you can't produce more of if the price goes to
1: infinity bitcoin man bitcoin
0: But listen, I couldn't find anything else, Peter. Like I looked at everything else. I couldn't find it.
1: But uh, look, I I agree with you. And that's that's brilliantly articulated. Next up, i talked talk to Michael Moore about MicroStrategy and their Bitcoin purchase. But before that, I have a message from my amazing sponsors. So let's talk about Kraken, my favorite place for buying and selling Bitcoin. It's the only place I use for buying and selling Bitcoin. And you're going to say, Pete, it's just because they're a sponsor. Nope not just because they're a sponsor. Listen, they have been consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. And security is really important to me. Look, I've talked about it a lot with Casa. Security is so important with Bitcoin. So I only want to use an exchange where I 100% trust their security. They also have the best in class in customer service. So whatever issue you have, whoever you are, wherever you are, if you reach out to them, they're going to help you get that shit sorted. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, They have all the tools that you could possibly need. Whatever your level of experience, at Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start trading Bitcoin. They also have a beautiful mobile-first app. So if you're out and about, if you're sat at that KFC, you're at Starbucks, you think, I want me some more Bitcoin... You can whip out their mobile app and you can start buying Bitcoin on the go. With their margin trading, futures, and OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at kraken.com or you can download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K R A K E N P R O. Also, we can't finish this show without talking about BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. Now, I am a BlockFi customer. I have an interest account. At the end of each month, I love checking my balance and seeing that my Bitcoin is working for me. Now, you can also do this. You can open up an interest account with BlockFi. But not only that, using your Bitcoin as collateral, you can take out a USD loan. You can also fund your BlockFi account directly from your Bitcoin wallet. And with the BlockFi mobile app, you can now fully manage your account on the go. With so much more coming this year, with everything the team is working on, they're going to smash it. If you're interested in checking BlockFi out, I recommend you first do your own research, then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. com. Let's just take a second. Bitcoin isn't isn't definite. It, it does have its own risks. Limited. And I think things like what you've done and now what Square have done is actually building a regulatory moat around Bitcoin. I think you're creating as as miners defend uh, the security of bitcoin i think you're you, you're you're defending bitcoin's uh, legitimacy because if any government specifically the u.s government was to let's just say there was an attempt to ban it they would be on shaky legal ground with the likes of yourselves and square and, and if enough companies have invested i think there could be a challenge to it that said all i'm saying is there is still a certain amount of risk and yeah, you know, when you're sat there with a half a billion dollar melting ice cube, you could have said, we'll put a hundred million in and we'll put some in gold and we'll put some here, some there. You know, you could have moved your money around and hedged your risk, but you didn't. You just went balls deep in Bitcoin. You're like, fuck this, let's do it all. (laughs) So like, that's some conviction that you had. You know, when the war arrives,
0: you got to choose sides, You know, if you're one of the nobles right. during the war of the roses and the lancasters are are coming across from the left and the yorks are coming across from the what right you can stand in the middle but i i think you kind of have to make a decision right and th- this is this is a time period where i think everybody's got to decide what they stand for i mean don't you think
1: well, no, I agree. Listen, look, the I made a show shortly after your purchase win, with a couple of other guys, and I went right out and I put. Look, my business is small. It's small. It's a it's a podcast business, right? Two shows, but the amount of money sat on the balance sheet relative to me and my income was high. You know, we're not talking. We're talking six figures. So for me, that's relative, and that's high. And I became nervous about holding pounds, so I moved. I've moved up to 60% of my uh, business balance sheet and that's money I don't need. So I have my like ongoing working capital, which absolutely fine. But like, this is the money where I'm not going to pay out as a dividend and it's just sat there. So I moved 60% and I'm personally up to 80% now because I guess I got, I had a certain amount of conviction. I got more conviction from, from what you did. So I picked a side, yeah. I guess.
0: I think there, there's just a bunch of, of uh, good things going on right now. And I, I agree yeah. with you. There is risk to anything you do in life. There is every decision you make in life, there is risk. Mm-hmm. And if, if you're afraid to take any risk, you'll never do anything. You'll never go yes. anywhere. You'll never try anything. You'll never do anything. Right. And, and so we all have to deal with that. And that's part of being an adult. That's, and that's part mm. of the human condition. And uh, when I look at the risks in Bitcoin, there are regulatory risks. By the way, there are regulatory risks that are different across every single jurisdiction. Right. Yeah, that's fair. It's different in Wyoming versus New York versus Florida versus the U.S. versus Russia versus China versus Japan versus whatever. And it's changing all the time. There's a whole set of challenges to be overcome. And there's a a huge community of Bitcoiners that are working in all their jurisdictions to do the right thing and to overcome those challenges. Then there's a set of risks in the technical domain in the software domain. We could actually get really enthusiastic and put so many features in the thing. We break it. And, but, and I'm a software, I've been a software for 30 years You know, Peter, most of my failures, they weren't bad ideas. They were good ideas pursued too enthusiastically. Like people think, oh,
1: yeah. No, don't say that. You've just gone after Bitcoin enthusiastically.
0: I I am enthusiastic. (laughs) But but the point is, like, you sit down and you think, I can build this application and I can put 37 features in it and it fails and tanks. And then you realize the guys at Instagram created a piece of software and all it did was like share a photo and you couldn't even resize the photo. And when I looked at it, I thought there's a thousand photo apps that are better than this, but theirs is the one that won because resizing the photo wasn't critical to the the photo network. What was critical to the photo network was speed and simplicity. Too often, enthusiastic technologists, they wanna add a feature. And with the feature comes an attack surface, or a performance problem, or an instability. And that Uh kills the network. And so, so the the challenge is to have 10 ideas, but to only embrace one idea, and to have the humility to know that just because there's 100 things I could do, maybe there's only one thing that I should do that I need to do. And and uh, the others are just undue risks that are probably going to be counterproductive, and they'll either destroy everything, you'll wreck the entire business, take it to zero, or they'll make it mediocre. And so there's technical risk in Bitcoin, and there's a whole community of people fighting that technical risk right now, and and we want to pray for them that they make the right decision. Right? I mean. But, and then there are the then there are the miners that are running and and they're struggling with all of, with with hardware risk and and uh, you know power risk et cetera. I kind of think about the keeper of the flame. You know that's such a strong metaphor. For example, you have you ever been to um uh to the Pantheon in Rome? It's not the Parthenon, but the Pantheon. It's a beautiful um a beautiful building uh, built by uh, Agri- Agrippa. Who was um, who was uh, I think I have. Augustus's right hand man, the guy that won the war for Caesar, Caesar Augustus, and uh, he endowed this uh, building, uh, the Pantheon. It's yes, I have a gorgeous building. You walk into it, it's got a big uh, o- oculus in the middle, like yeah. yeah,
1: and the light comes through it.
0: Yeah, and you could never forget it if you walked yeah. in the building no, because it... this bolt of light comes in. Yeah. Okay, why do you think that lasted for two thousand years? because most buildings don't last for 2,000 years.
1: I mean, I guess because it was built on solid foundations.
0: (laughs) I I would like to say that. And it
1: was defended, I don't wanna say it's defended by the Italian army.
0: (laughs) Every, it's easy to build a thing. It's hard to maintain the thing and it's really difficult to profit from a thing. And so what you learn over time is that with time, everything gets decimated. Everything is torn down. And the only way it's not decimated is you have to maintain it. The reason that building still standing 2,000 years later is because it was adopted as a church by the Roman Catholic Church. And you had 100 generations of monks and all of the cash flows of the Roman Catholic Church or the the church through the ages flowing into maintaining that against corrosion and the destructive force of rain and you, you name it. They rebuilt it. They maintained it. If the the church had not adopted that, it would have crumbled eventually. And so when I use the word keeper of a flame, you ask, how do I get something to last hundreds of years, right? What's going to last hundreds of years? Like Oxford, Cambridge, it it needs to be an institution, St. Peter's, St. Paul's, something that someone feels a religious passion about. Like, it's, it's important enough for me to lie down in front of that tank for that, right? It's important enough for me. Mm-hmm. My son, my daughter will carry on. This is in my will. I will leave, you know, as my last will and testament, I will leave all my money to the maintenance of the thing. So when I look at Bitcoin, I think I think it's re- the maximalists are really critical, right, to, to this entire thing. That's what elevates it beyond someone's science experiment, right? And there's a lot of things in the crypto space where uh, they're tech enthusiasts and all they want to do is find a better, cheaper, faster, cooler, sexier widget. Mm -hmm. But what they're missing is, is their grandchild going to fight and die and protect and, and, and brag about the fact that their grandfather or grandmother did this thing? Because if you go to St. Peter's, I think it took uh, like 180 years to build the building, right? I mean, these these things take a while, and they stand for a while. And people didn't do it because they thought it was a cute trinket. They thought that that it was a monument to divinity. You know, it was a way it was a way to achieve all their hopes and their values and their aspirations as human beings and when i when i watched the bitcoin network run and i watched the software developers feed it and the nodes feed it and the miners feed it and then i look at the analyst and the people that cover it and the people that promote it and the, and everybody's out there they're building they're building servers on the back end and exchanges and they're building front-end wallets, and they're building software, and they're fighting those regulatory wars. Those are the cyber hornets, you know, that are yeah, man. that are serving the goddess of wisdom. And it's going to be a never-ending fight for as long as the thing lives. But newsflash, so is everything else: countries, religions, yeah, institutions, families. They're all never-ending fights. The question is, where are your values and what, how are you going to spend your life force and what do you care about and what do you want to be defined by?
1: Okay. So you make the decision. You, you get your absolute conviction. You you bowl into work one day. You sit down with your board and you're like, lads, lads, listen. I've got an idea. <laughs> like, how does that work? How does... Th- how do you first deliver that? Like, did you have to counsel some people internally first? Did you sit down with your board and go, I've got an idea? Like, how did that work? Um, for something
0: like this, you need the consensus of the officers and the directors of the company. And you, <clears throat> and they all they all have to internalize it, understand it, believe it, and support it. And they all have a voice in it. So... First, I I collected a small curation of materials. Things that things that make the case about call it three hours worth of YouTube videos and uh, and uh, a number of documents. And and by the way, there's a Bitcoin section on MicroStrategy's website for anybody interested in this. And um, we've actually created its own category and. In addition to some of my videos, there some of the videos that I relied upon that I showed to the board are there and then some of the documents and um, and uh, some of the white papers are there for anybody else to look at, including some of our financial filings. So we've tried to curate this so anybody else can just go and look. But what, what I did is I curated a set of materials then I had one-on-one meetings, right? Uh, and, and I mm-hmm. think what I did is I I sent the materials to everybody. I said, "Look, this is your homework. I need you to look at all this, you know, and watch these things because because it's better explained by one of the early Andreas." There's the early Andreas discussion. There's a what is Bitcoin mm-hmm. discussion. There's a there's this uh, I think a seminal debate between Eric Voorhees and Peter Schiff, you know, on on
1: I love that debate
0: Bitcoin versus fiat. And it's kind of ironic now, but Peter Schiff defending fiat seems ridiculous, right? Like why? Yeah, why I know. Is the gold I, know. Like, I, I don't even, I don't even know how can you possibly believe in gold and then defend fiat? As I, I don't get it. But that you know, so I found things like that. I put the put it to the directors and officers. Then I met with them one on one, and then I uh, I answered every question. We had a discussion. You know, and, and, uh, and everybody told me what they thought. And some of them had some experience with uh, with Bitcoin and some had experience with crypto and some did not. About half and half, half of them had experience okay. or, and half of them were ahead of me. And then half of them had never seen this before. So now we're all coming up to the same level of speed. And in my experience, Peter, if you want to create stress and anxiety, there's a simple way to do it. You put two people in a room and you give them a a topic which takes 30 minutes to understand and you give them five minutes to make a decision. Okay. Whatever it is, if it takes five minutes to understand the issue, then I give you 30 seconds to make the decision. So that's the way that you have people at at loggerheads with each other. And the real key to getting consensus and, and having everybody feel good about it is you can't jam these things on anybody. You can't rush them. Everybody needs to feel respected. And they, and they all need to, it needs to be um, symmetric information, not asymmetric. I can't have 10 hours of knowledge and you have 10 minutes of knowledge. Two intelligent people are going to disagree and fight with each other. And so first we establish a baseline. Then, Then I figure out where everybody is. Then we come together as a, as a group and we discuss it. Then, then corporate governance is critical in a publicly traded company, right? There's, there's the, here's an idea. I, you know, and you and I, if you're a private investor, all I have to do is convince you that this is better than, um, it's better than real estate stocks, bonds, swaps, other forms of cash, you know, random insurance policies and commodities, gold, silver, platinum, whatever, or buying another company, right? Those are all the things you can do with the money. <laughs> buy anything on earth or Picasso's, right? You want to buy art, scarce collectibles. All I got to do is convince you this is better than that. And then we're done. And then you're like, okay, Mike, let's just put our money in this or, or, or give me 10 million worth of it or $100 million worth of it. If you're a publicly traded company, you've got a whole nother set of questions how do we account for it? How do we how do we report it? How will you know, how will our partners feel about it? Right? Our, our, our outside shareholders are partners in the business. So I after I have finished figuring this out, figuring out what what is the most rational course of action from an investor point of view, we have to ask the question, what's the body of settled law say? What are our disclosure obligations? What are our accounting obligations? And now, how do we communicate this to our counterparties? And by the we also have, we have outside law firms and we have outside accountants and we have our the rest of our employees and we can't do business without their support, right? Like, so, so you, you could do
1: That's a lot of people.
0: It's kind of like being married to 15 different women at the same time. And they all have equal
1: rights. Jesus, that's like a description of hell
0: <laughs> I, if you're you know it's like I struggled with one but <laughs> but you understand it's 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 you're you can't just make the decision yourself you have to you there, there's that phrase if you want to go fast go alone you want to go far go together so yeah but so we have to work through that so after after I get consensus from the board and the officers of the company everybody's got their own role to play the general counsel has it has a project because he's got to work through all the legal issues
1: and then but, but was everyone with the board was everybody on board or were there any kind of naysayers or does it come down to a vote and you know some lose out or did did you have did you essentially have consensus I, on the board
0: i'm ve- we had consensus on the board and, nice. and i feel very blessed it's very we're fortunate for a number of of reasons. One, um, everybody's very technology forward, right? It's, we don't have, we're a software company, we're a technology company, all we've done is make investments in technology for 30 years. And there's no future for a technology company that doesn't continually reinvent itself. So I don't have people on the board that aren't sensitive to the need to, to progress. I think, um, I think the other thing is there. Uh, there's a lot of continuity on the board. So so we all knew each other really well and we had a good relationship. Uh, it's very hard. Uh, it's hard to, to do something uh, dramatic uh, in a hurry when you're new to a relationship. And I think the third is we have a small board. There's only five of us on the board, right? So if it was 15 or 20 or 25, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the cost – when you get to 20 people on the board, the number of combinations and permutations of dynamic get, get pretty extreme. They, by the way, the, the idea of, of, of Bitcoin, right, is we decentralize everything so no one will ever agree to make a dramatic change that'll wreck it. But, you know, if, if you want to actually get consensus to do something, you need a, a finite number of nodes. So I think that um, we benefited from our structure in that regard and the nature of the company and uh, and that helped us move quicker. And uh, probably that was necessary for the first. I think that if you're the 10th company that does this, then you're just like, well, you know, this company did it. And then, you know, Square did it. you know, And if, if we get a you know Twitter that does it or you get another tech company that does it, pretty soon it becomes just something that people do know and, mm-hmm. and it would be easier
1: wow so you make the decision you get your lawyers on board your lawyers must have been like, oh God man what are you doing are you like are you traditionally kind of like one of those I don't want to say reckless but off- the wall CEOs does some kind of like big bold moves occasionally
0: you know it's all relative like relative to the CEOs that have had their job for a decade and I've been a public company CEO for eighty four quarters okay twenty two years, which means that I've been CEO of a, of um I think probably of a technology company longer than anybody. there might be mm-hmm. one person in the entire industry, but but um, in my industry, that's a long time. So there have C, there have been CEOs that came and went that maybe were a lot wilder than me, right? But they don't stick around mm-hmm. long because your company gets acquired, or or you blow yourself up, or something like that. But for someone that's going to be in the business a decade, I would say that that I'm a bit more um, I'm a bit more progressive.
1: Right. So, so you got you got them on board. The lawyers must be like, were there massive hurdles for the lawyers? Like, was it a huge issue, or was it just one of those figuring out? There's a
0: lot of thinking. There's a lot of thinking to go through. You know the entire industry revolves around precedent so you look at every other publicly traded company that's ever done this and of course what we found was no one had ever done this <laughs> we found overstock you know and over and and overstock yeah. wasn't really a good case because we couldn't find an example of a publicly traded company that adopted bitcoin as a treasury reserve asset we found overstock had t- had basically taken some revenues in in bitcoin and Square doing some revenues in Bitcoin, but our use case was very different. And so and so the disclosures and the body of law would be different. And so that, yeah, it makes it challenging, but as I've said to other people, it's a project, but there are harder things. When Andrew Carnegie figured out how to make steel plants work without blowing up, you know, it was harder. <laughs> any entrepreneur that's ever been successful in getting a business from zero to something did a hard thing and so it was just a project that we went through and uh eventually right that's why that's why we kind of worked on it from memorial day all the way through june all the way through july
1: and when when's memorial day may 30 like the end of may right so it's like a what a three-month process I mean, from decision to trigger?
0: I Something like that. I mean, yeah. we went uh, just a little bit faster, but it was like an eight-week to ten-week. I think, you know, if you were lightning fast, maybe you could do it four weeks, but I just don't think you could do it in less than four weeks because what has to happen is first you get consensus with the doctors and officers. Then you have to go through and vet institutional-grade custodians and institutional-grade exchanges you have to line up all of your all of your special purpose legal and uh, accounting advice and policy and understand how you're going to do that. You have to think through your control compliance systems, how are you going to handle these things? Then you may or may not have uh, disclosures and timing. What Square did was a, a, a 1%, which means that you could make a 1% move. It would be deemed as immaterial by an accountant, and you could do that and put that they still put it on a wire but you know at one percent you you're almost on the threshold where you might not even have to announce that other than i mean one you know you might buy one percent of whatever and and you could you could electively say put it on the wire with an 8k or you might wait for the quarter and put it out in your 10q or you might just say one percent is so immaterial on a huge balance sheet that we're not going to disclose we're just going to call it other assets right and so so that's that's one of those interesting nuances. And there's a little gray area there. But if, it, if that was 50 percent or 30 percent, now you go through the issue of. You know, do I have to disclose the potential of doing that to shareholders before I do it? Right. Like, would you actually would you actually announce to the entire the entire world that you just put $10, five billion dollars into Bitcoin overnight? What you I don't think they would have done that. Yeah. But but could you do it? You could do it, but you would be wise to say we're thinking of doing it. Right. You would announce that we've now changed our treasury policy. And and over the next 12 months, we may, in fact, subject to market conditions, invest a substantial portion of our treasury into Bitcoin. That's what you would say. And you would yeah. let the market digest that. Right. And and by the way, you might you might be more conservative you might say, you might do what we did, which is to say, well, we're thinking of doing it. And then you say, well, we're going to invest 250 million in Bitcoin, but we're also going to buy back 250 million worth of our own stock at a premium. So if you don't like it, you have a, you have an option to sell out at a premium. You can get off the train, right? Mm. You, you either get bought out of the partnership at a profit, or you stick around to see how things work. And that's, you know, if you had a partner and your partner walked into your office and said, uh, Peter, I'd like to invest all of our treasury or half our treasury in Ethereum. And you thought Bitcoin was a better idea. You know, you, you might be irked if he said, I already did it.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, I would be. And And,
0: and, and so the respectful way for him to do it would be to say, Peter, I feel strongly about this. I, I want to do it, but if you disagree with me, I'll buy you out at a premium.
1: Okay. You see. But did anyone did anyone freak out anyway?
0: It was remarkably smooth. Mm-hmm. It was it was incredibly smooth. In fact, we announced this, uh, and then we talked to some of our investors, and and the majority of the investors we talked to said, "Yeah, that seems pretty progressive. I get it." <laughs> You know, and and then I heard one, you know, there's there's one story I was like, well, there's this one investor is not going to like it, you know, and so get ready when you meet him. And so I met the one investor and and uh, he said, yeah, so tell me about the Bitcoin thing. And I said, I started with my spiel of we think we're going to get a negative 10 to 15 percent real yield on our cash. And and uh, we we didn't want to defund the entire treasury. We couldn't like drain it all. We needed to keep it somehow. And so Bitcoin was, in our opinion, uh, the, the strongest thing we could do that would keep our treasury purchasing power that would have give us a hedge against inflation. And let me tell you why it's, you know, better than other things. And he goes, no, you don't have to. I, I know Bitcoin. I own it. <laughs> so, so, right. so, so his issue wasn't, I don't like Bitcoin. His issue was, why can't you just give me back all the money? <laughs> like, Instead of buying back 250 million, why don't you buy back 500 million worth of the stock and just give us all the treasury and then I'll go invest it the way I want. And, I, and look, I respect that. It's like, yeah, nice. I know why you want the 500 million to invest. But the problem is if I drain the, the treasury, I decapitalize the entire company. Yeah. I decapitalize the entire company and we, and sh- we come into uh, an unexpected negative event we're insolvent and we're bankrupt. And if we go insolvent, that causes me to break faith with every one of my customers and every one of my employees and every one of my creditors and every one of my counterparties. And that's not a wise way to run a business with zero treasury. So so let's just try half and half, right?
1: It's, it's, it's treasury, um, just to help me understand because I don't know how it works out in the US, but it's, it's treasury post-tax. Have you paid your kind of corporation tax? Generally,
0: it's possible yeah. to have it's possible to have um, uh, treasury balances and foreign subsidiaries that are un, unpatri- not repatriated.
1: But I think yeah, that like, like Apple have.
0: Right.
1: Sorry. Like Apple have. Apple have yeah. Got, like. Yeah.
0: Sometimes. some it, But. But. but Having said that, I think the tax law, like the tax code change of 2018, they basically imposed um, a repatriation tax on everyone unilaterally, whether you mm. wish to repatriate or not. And so we had the problem solved for us by that tax. Bring it home. Where I think we uh, we had the tax, we paid the tax, and then we had the option to repatriate it. So for us, we had uh, we had all the capital after tax
1: but if the if bitcoin goes up in value and you have to liquidate any of it do you, is there an incremental tax on that you have to pay as well
0: okay the ta- the tax code is you only pay tax when you sell it and you realize the tax when you sell it by the way you would realize the tax if you transferred it as a payment or if you received it as a payment, you would it on your books as, with a basis. So, so it's a very important nuance. If I, if I, uh, owed you a bill and I paid it with a hundred thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, I would look at the price of Bitcoin on the day that I paid you. And it would be as if I had sold the Bitcoin. And if that generated a taxable event, then I would owe that tax. So the use of Bitcoin as a currency, per U.S. IRS tax code, and I think this is tax code in most of the Western world, um, would be taxable on transfer or on on trade. It doesn't matter whether I sold it or whether I transferred it. So in that particular case, if we buy $100 million worth of Bitcoin and it's in our treasury and and it goes up, there's no tax until we sell it. Now, you you said... Well, Mike, what if it goes up and we have to sell it? Well, that's a non-sequitur. I don't have to sell it because it went up. I have to sell it because I got hit with an unexpected large bill, you know, because of some pandemic shock or because... Yeah,
1: no, that's what I meant. That's what I meant. Like, if there was a situation you were forced to sell it, do you have, like, another tax to pay on? And do you just pay on the incremental additional earnings?
0: If... If we held this, if we had 100 million in Bitcoin and the price didn't go up, and if we had a a shock and we needed to raise 20 million, we would sell 20 million worth of Bitcoin, pay no tax because there's no capital gain in it.
1: Yeah, Yeah. so it's just a capital gain.
0: If if we had 100 million in Bitcoin and it went up by a factor of 10, and we had a billion dollars and we had a shock and we needed 20 million, we would sell 20 million. And that $20 million would have uh, a large capital gain in it, 10 to 1. So it would have an $18 million gain in it. And we would owe, what, ordinary, uh, long-term 28% or maybe income tax, maybe capital gains tax. I, I forget. But let's say 30%. We would pay some tax bill on the gain, not on the basis, at the time that we sold it.
1: Right. Okay. All right. So so you've pulled the trigger and you've gone through it. You've, you've done the purchase. You've custodied through the whole process like if someone was listening to this and they're thinking about it for their company what were like the the most important key lessons that you learned and did you even make any mistakes was anything in the process like shit we should have done that differently
0: i don't think we made any mistakes i thought the execution was pretty pretty textbook i mean from how we made the decision how we went through the corporate governance all the deliberation all of the disclosures to the, to the public, the mechanics of the acquisition, the, the, the perfect synchronicity of the tender offer with the acquisition, all of these things uh, were important, and then uh, the subsequent disclosures. Um, if I was giving advice to someone else, I think, I think it would depend upon whether they're a publicly traded company or they're a private company. I think if um, they're a private company, then it just becomes much, much easier. Then you just have to go through the, the due diligence, the deliberation, build consensus, establish your trade relationships, and then after your trade relationships, execute. I think if you're a public company, then you've got the additional steps that I outlined. And then uh, public company, it's a very different thing because every company has a different capital structure, has a different shareholder base, has a different set of expectations. For example, if you were Warren Buffett, it wouldn't be very hard for Warren Buffett to do this at all. Warren Buffett could say,
1: Mm.
0: we bought $2 billion worth of Bitcoin you know, we bought 5 billion worth of gold miners, we bought 10 billion worth of Apple, we bought this, we bought this. If you're an investment company, it's very straightforward. If you're um, a high-tech company with a very, very small treasury, and uh, then then it might be viewed as, uh, as uh, making a small treasury a liquid. But if you've got a massive treasury and you don't need the money, like if you're Apple or Apple... Twitter, Square, they don't need money. I mean, they don't need the treasury. They're generating cash flows that are insanely great. And the likelihood in the next five years or 10 years, it's almost impossible for those businesses not to generate cash, right? Just almost inconceivable for YouTube or Twitter or Apple, right, to not generate cash maybe at Netflix, because they get this capital intensive business where they got to go spend hundreds of millions of dollars to buy content or make movies. But, but if you have a pure digital network, Facebook, they're just going to generate cash. So I don't think it's that much of a risk for them. It's just it's just uh, a little bit more of a disclosure issue. Because people aren't used to seeing Facebook invest in equities, debt, or other alternate assets. Insurance companies, though, Warren Buffett created an insurance company. You know, talk about aggressive. What if I bought an insurance company with MicroStrategy stock, and then I and the insurance company had 2 billion or 5 billion in assets in government bonds, and then I sold the bonds and I bought Bitcoin with the $5 billion worth of insurance assets that are being held in trust for widows and orphans and life insurance funds to pay off 30 years from now, or pension fund, right? That would be an interesting move, but by the way, it happens. I mean, there are insurance companies that do buy equities, and at some point, they, you know, other institutions could invest in this. But uh, that's the summary: is everybody's different, and they've all got different circumstances, and so they'll go through their own journey. I think.
1: Have you had any CEOs get on the phone to you and say, "Can we talk about this? What have you done? I'm interested."
0: I'm making, I'm making some new friends. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm making friends. I'm meeting people, and I'm meeting people in the industry that have substantial sums of money, and they're thinking about this in a very deep fashion now, and I'm giving them advice. And I look forward to giving more advice. And if anybody, any of your listeners know of anybody that that runs a company, private, public, or otherwise, that wants to get the full blow-by-blow blow inside scoop, hook them up with me. I have infinite energy to take people through this. There's a lot of stuff that I that I could tell them that I just can't post publicly, and I can't share publicly for security reasons or other reasons. But, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of conversations going on, and um, I expect there'll be more in the future.
1: Well, I mean, you have an incentive to do it. You own over 0.1% of... The Bitcoin supply, right? More people come on board; it's it's gonna it's gonna prove your bet.
0: I, you know, Peter, I have an incentive to do it, but for the record, and I want to be very clear about this, my yep. number one reason to do it is I want to help the maximalist. Like I really think the 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 heroes, the unsung heroes, the people that really they saw the future, they bled for the future, they dragged this thing on their back, they went through hell. They fought fork wars one, fork war two. They stood up against the establishment. They stood up against the miners. They stood up against the exchanges. They were betrayed. Who knows how many times? And they got up and they kept working Were the Bitcoin maximalists and they deserve this, right? Out of respect to them. I would do it for them. I mean, I I just feel like they deserve this, right? And people, people ought to show them some respect. It matters
1: also actually interestingly so it can, it can do some weird things in terms of the valuation of microstrategy right because i guess if somebody say bitcoin did a 10x and you know your position ends up becoming worth 4.5 billion dollars if someone was interested in inquiring acquiring microstrategy and you're like yeah i'm done I'm, I'm i'm happy then i guess what would you release that and distribute it among shareholders or do they end up having to buy the whole thing? It's kind of, a it puts you in an interesting position.
0: You know, I'm, I'm able to speculate about the future of Bitcoin as much as you want, but, <laughs> but I'm not really uh, empowered to speculate about the future of micro strategy and what we would do or not That's, do in a hypothetical situation. And so I, uh, I will let you do that. Uh, what I will that. say is, um, is something a bit more uh, topical, which is if, um, if someone throws you into a sea of liquidity and you, you fell off a ship and strapped around your neck was a $500 million block of concrete and it was heavier than water. Not not so heavy that it dragged you down. Let's say it was a five hundred million dollar block of concrete that sort of floats a little bit, but it's slowly sinking, like ten feet a year, twenty feet a year, and you've got this leash on you. And you thought maybe I have a one time chance to convert a five hundred million. Dollar block of concrete into a $500 million crypto arc or crypto inflatable. And that's going to float on top of the sea of liquidity. I might might go ahead and pull the ripcord, inflate the raft. I might cut the line to the 500 tons of concrete. I might crawl up into my crypto raft and if you ask me why did I do it, I did it to not drown, Peter. Right? I didn't yeah. want to drown. But then if you said, Well, Michael, it what happens if the sea rises by a hundred feet <laughs> or the crypto sea keeps rising? If they just keep pumping more water and it rises and rises and rises and rises, I'm like, Well, a rising tide lifts all boats. I would just like to be in the boat. So when I look at it, I think, yeah. If if uh, if Bitcoin is successful, that's good for us. And if people keep printing more money, that's probably on the margin. I'm better to be in the inflatable that's floating on the money than be swimming with the concrete block around my neck that's sinking with the money. And and that's how we look at it from a, a financial point of view. And I, I I think that that's the essence of Bitcoin as a treasury reserve asset. The whole point. Is to float and not sink. And by the way, other assets are floating. The reason we had a K-shaped recovery is because the bonds and the stocks in the market were floating on all of the money, all the stimulus money that was being printed by the Fed. But on the other hand, all these mainstream businesses are not floating on it. Right? They're 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 basically chained via you know to an anvil. That that uh, is holding them down as we basically pump water into the room
1: yeah okay what do you think of that one <laughs> bit, bit of a monster right how good is Michael Saylor right I think that microstraddy has made it much easier for companies to follow their lead and I think Square has to and following Square they actually I think they released some documents explaining how they did it I think this is something we're going to be seeing quite a lot of. I discussed this in my interview with Plan B, Preston Pish, and Jeff Booth, where we talked about perhaps you know the next phase of Bitcoin is this corporate treasury FOMO. One thing that I couldn't believe, that like really surprised me when talking to Michael, is that he only started going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole last year, and yet he had the conviction to put half a billion dollars into it. Um, pretty amazing stuff. In the second half of the interview, we did get into the Bitcoin value proposition, maximalism, privacy, and so much more. That's going to be dropping on Friday, so make sure you check that out. But if you've got any other questions, any feedback, you can hit me up. My email address is hello hello@whatbitcoindid.com. Outside of that, if you want to support the show, I've been asking for the last few weeks. Do you mind going to iTunes and leaving me a review? It only takes about two minutes, and I've noticed some of you've been doing it. So thank you so much. Honestly, I really appreciate that. It really helps with the rankings in iTunes. But if you do have two minutes, please do that. And. Then and outside of that my other show defiance we've got a series about glane maxwell at the moment which is doing amazingly well um, so thank you to everyone has checked that out if you haven't it's very well researched and that's available at defiance.news and if you want to reach out to me if you've got any questions i pretty much reply to all emails my email address is hello what bitcoin did.com so feel free to do that have a great week and i'll see you all on friday